0: Thanks for joining us on episode 1,274 of the Inspired Stewardship Podcast.
1: I'm Maria Lessi. I challenge you to invest in yourself, invest in others, develop your influence, and impact the world by using your time, your talent, and your treasures to live out your calling. Having the ability to choose hope and healing when dealing with loss is key. And one way to be inspired to do that is to listen to this. The Inspired Stewardship Podcast with my friend, Scott Mader. And here's the thing, you do two things with that. You train your brain to focus on the things that you want to see rather than on the pain. And you focus on what you actually need in your life. And when you focus, what we focus on is what we attract into our lives. So it's a very simple game that everyone can play
0: that really prepares you. Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. If you truly desire to become the person who God wants you to be, then you must learn to use your time, your talent, and your treasures for your true calling. In the Inspired Stewardship Podcast, you will learn to invest in yourself, invest in others, and develop your influence so that you can impact the world. In today's interview with Marie Alisi, I ask Marie to share with you her journey to writing a book and founding a movement about dealing with loss. Marie also talks with you about her faith and how this has helped her on this journey through her own loss. And Maria also shares with you how all of us need to learn to deal with grief and support others with their journey through grief. One reason I like to bring you great interviews like the one you're going to hear today is because of the power in learning from others. Another great way to learn from others is through reading books. But if you're like most people today, you find it hard to find the time to sit down and read. And that's why today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Go to inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to sign up, and you can get a 30-day free trial. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from, and instead of reading, you can listen your way to learn from some of the greatest minds out there. That's inspiredstewardship.com slash audible to get your free trial and listen to great books the same way you're listening to this podcast. Marie Alisi is a mother of two boys, a best-selling author, an influencer, and a speaker. After her husband passed away from a brain aneurysm, she found and created her way back to joy. She instinctively knew it was the only path worthy for their young boys. Her husband had taught her the concept of two choices, and this one was made in his honor to make him proud. Marie has become a shining example of choosing love over fear and sadness, In her movement Marie offers hope healing, and happiness to the world when people expect it the least and need it the most. Welcome to the show, Marie. Thank you. So we talked a little bit, and I shared a little bit in the intro, that you've had some pretty life-changing events that brought you to the point of kind of writing this book and starting this movement. Would you share a little bit more about your journey and why you decided out of that to put this out into the world.
1: Yeah, I'll give you a super nutshell version because the story in itself is super long. I think we could fill three hours, but I'll give you the nutshell version. You can ask me more details where you want to. So in a nutshell, I worked as a mindset mentor at that time when the story starts and I had my own coaching business. I focused on helping business people with personal growth to achieve business growth. Basically, that was what I did. And Rob, my husband, went on a business trip to the other side of Australia and never came home. So it was literally this moment of our life was super happy. Everything was going well. Everything was working for us. We were known as that couple that everybody looked at. as, like, oh, my God, look at you two. They were always, like, very smitten with us and besotted. It was really nice. And then all of a sudden that happened. Rob went away and never came home. Our boys were 10 and 8, and Rob had a brain aneurysm, so he died instantly on the spot. There was no pre-warning, no preparation. Nothing could have indicated that. He was 45 years old in the prime of his life and super fit, healthy, a surfer, loved life and uh, collapsed and died. That was the beginning of what I do these days. It's an incredible start to a story. I understand that and quite shocking. You can only imagine the shock that we had when we received the news. But about four months into it, I noticed very significantly, and I knew from the beginning, but it was just so apparent that I was handling my grief very differently to what people expected. Rob and I were lucky enough that we had a couple of situations in our lives that triggered us to have this conversation about what if. And our answer was always very simple. We looked at it and I was like, I want you to take the boys and create the happiest life possible. But, of course, that was theory when it all of a sudden happened. You, you don't expect that to become reality ever, and you don't expect it to become reality at the age of 45. And when it happened, I knew that's what I had to do. I just knew that's what he wanted me to do. That's what I would have wanted him to do. And love is simple. Love just wants you to be happy. And that's what I went with. So people were naturally quite confused when they looked at me and thought, what on earth is she doing? Is she not grieving her husband or is she still in shock or in denial? And it was none of that. I was grieving, but in a very different way. And that didn't mean that I never cried. But it meant that my focus was always on how can I create happiness for the boys, for myself. And about four months into it, I decided I'm going to write a book about it. I actually had a nervous breakdown in my kitchen. And out of that, I knew I had to see somebody who to help me through the thickness of it in the beginning. And Emily, she was a positive psychologist, still is, <laughs> is really she was such a catalyst in my life. She helped me really make sense of my choices and how I was dealing with it. And one day she asked me, I was sitting in her office in one of our sessions, and she asked me, what does grief mean to you, Marie? Because I told her about all these expectations from others and how they put so much pressure on me. And I said, empowerment. It's a very bizarre answer that came up, but that was the answer that came up for me. And I believe it was due to the enormous strength that I felt after Rob passed. I really felt so guided. I felt like I was always looked after and my path was always clear ahead of me. It was really quite miraculously. So I did. I wrote a book about it. I decided, I said to her, I think I need to write a book about that. And I did. And that book became an Amazon number one bestseller and ranked in the top top 100 of Australia. I was... Not expecting that. Absolutely not. And yeah, that that was the beginning of our story. I'm not sure how much further you wanted to
0: take, but... Let me ask you a couple of follow-up questions, because you you mentioned in that, that the expectations that kind of others were putting on you about grief. Mm -hmm. Uh, What, you know, from that experience, what lessons would you share with others when not we'll talk some later about when we're dealing with our own grief, when somebody who you care about is dealing with grief. Yeah. Loss of a spouse, loss of a child, loss of a job, loss of a business, all of the different ways yeah. it shows up in our life. What are the some of the things that we need to be careful about doing and maybe not doing to yeah. help them through it?
1: There are a couple of things that come up straight away that I want to share because they're all like really quite important tools. First of all, I always say the hardest one, but best one, is to go into gratitude. And I have to be honest with you, Scott, I was not able to do that the first few months, probably even a year. If somebody says to you, you just lost your husband, oh, just be grateful for what you have. It doesn't work like that. Let's be honest. We all know that. It's impossible. And I was always a big believer in when uh, adversity hits you to focus on what you have and step into gratitude, step into love. That is something really challenging to do. I knew that was the best option, but I just couldn't do it. I have to be honest. It was really hard. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because you probably come a lot uh, across a lot of people who try to have that approach with you and say, I'd be grateful that you have kids. I'd be grateful that, yes, of course I am. I love my kids with all my heart, but it doesn't mean that it makes it easier. So what I had to learn was to do that interim step To And I call that neutralizing thoughts, to really take the thoughts and just take them as is. These are the two magical words, as is. Just repeat that as an ongoing mantra, really. It's like, yes, my husband died. The whole effect on it, people put judgment on it straight away. That's the worst thing that can ever happen to you. That's so horrible. Your life is over. Of course it's horrible, but it doesn't mean that your life is over. And then there's this other myth. Your life will never be the same. Well, duh, of course not. My, my life's never ever going to be the same. Of course not. Yet whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is really up to me. What I mm-hmm. make out of my life is really up to me. And I always say that healing and happiness are both just a decision away. They are choices that we can make in our lives. It doesn't mean it's a flick-the-switch solution, but there are choices. And that is the one thing that we often forget, the choices that we do have in that situation. And I always have to choose how I respond to it. And the last thing I want to say here is to not succumb to society's expectation that how you're supposed to grieve, the falling apart, the crying, how your grief looks like is really up to you. And so many people I work with have got this very early intuition of feeling or need for laughter, for joy, for happiness, and they don't ever dare to admit that because how dare you? You're supposed to be grieving. You're supposed to be sad. And I don't think so. I think that sadness, grieving, let's name it by the name that we're talking about here, that grieving and joy can absolutely coexist. That's the most important part that I want to say to people. It can coexist. Just don't let yourself be swayed by what other people expect you to do.
0: So one of the interesting experiences I've had a couple of times is where I've gone to uh, a, a funeral ceremony, but it was followed by a celebration of life ceremony Yeah, a what... you, you grieve on the way to the grave. Yeah. And then the point is, as you leave, you go get together and you remember the happy times and you remember good memories and you share yeah. food and, and you laugh and you play music and all of that. It's, it's, you've seen this like in New Orleans, in movies in New Orleans, where they do that. Say, I've actually participated in those. And I've told, I've actually told my wife, I'm like, that's what I want y'all to do. I I pass before you. That's what I want. I want, because I don't think, again, like you said, it's that idea of, I think people try to make it, I can be sad or I can be happy. And it's, no, actually, you can be both of those at exactly the same time. Um, oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, we had that for Rob as well. We had an absolute celebration of life. I could not believe how much laughter there was in a room. People shared so many beautiful and really fun stories about Rob, and it made my day, and I, I knew he would have loved it. It's exactly what he would have.
0: Uh, that, I guess that's, in some ways, the worst thing about a funeral is the person that kind of needs to hear the events <laughs> It's is often the trigger of the events, too, in, in terms of, The stories that are told and whatnot. So, how did your faith journey evolve and adapt and affect your spiritual feelings through this? How did that interact with the journey that you were on? Yeah,
1: I have to say it was a really
0: intense journey for me from a
1: spiritual level because I was brought up in a Catholic family, very Catholic family actually, Mm -hmm. from both my parents' sides actually, and. So I was brought up in that faith, but when I was about 20, no, when I was 20, actually not about, it was exactly when I was 20, my dad passed away. And I have to say that really shook my faith tremendously, really tremendously. I went into, if there is a God and he's so loving, why on earth would he take my dad away? I went into blaming, into all that everything phase. And it took me quite some time and I did find my own faith, my own spirituality again. It was not the Catholic faith anymore, I have to say. And I could not really name what my faith was, but I did believe in someone bigger up there looking out for us. I couldn't put it into words. And I was not really in that, do you name him God? Do you not... I was really i had no words for it but i had a lot of feeling for it and i felt a lot of guidance i felt very strong guidance and about two months before rob died i had a really strong call to go to hope church and that is our christian mm-hmm. church here in town and it's interesting because i had known the pastor for quite some time and he had a background in coaching and we actually did a workshop together as coaches side by side once and and I had no idea he was the pastor, and then I learned about him. And the way he was so passionate how he talked about God, talked about God. I really, I just wanted to go and see him preach. I thought this is incredible. He's so passionate, and he told his story how he came from no faith to faith and became a pastor and devoted his whole life to God. And so there were so many spiritual things happening that I felt surrounded by and really held by. And for about two years, we were absolute weekly visitors at church. The church became our family, and we were very well surrounded by that. I had a realisation, and I felt like the wordings that I used were not very well received by the Christian community. And for me, it was this realisation that I felt Rob and I had a soul contract. That was what we had chosen from a soul level that was so our path and it wasn't very well received the Christian community did not really like that wording I understand that but this is how I see it and maybe they would use different words and say God has chosen this path for you and I'm okay with that too but I knew that was our path and I knew that I was so looked after and I've never been any more spiritual and believing than I am now I just Mm -hmm. haven't put a label on it if it's the Christian or the it's Maybe that's what people expect from you. And I work a lot against uh, expectations from people and it's not out of wanting to wanting to be like that. It's just, I don't know. I don't know if that answers yeah. your question, but I feel well, very it's, guided on the path that I'm on.
0: No, it answers the question. And I actually think the two answers are connected in that what I mean by that is you were like dealing with grief. You were dealing with it in a way that was authentic. Yeah, for you, not necessarily the way that everyone else would do it. And in the spiritual (laughs) journey, you're doing it in a way that was authentic to you. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the way everyone else would do it. (laughs) But I think a lot of times within many faith communities, there can be a feeling of, if just again, within grief, I've seen the same thing where people are like, they're not grieving the way I would grieve. So they're not grieving. And it's not necessarily How do you know you're not in their head? You're not in their heart. You're not feeling what they're feeling. How do you know? I think the same thing happens with spirituality. Sometimes we put labels on it that I'm Christian, but I firmly believe that those decisions are well above my pay grade. So what are some of the things that kind of helped you as you went through this journey?
1: I think it's going back to the previous question, really that guidance. I felt such a strong guidance along my way it was almost like my path was constantly presenting itself no matter where I went it was like all the doors just opened up for me where I went it was incredible and it's like the same as for me being a sole parent me starting the movement the business that I run now everything was just ahead of me and I had moments of really questioning it and really thinking is that my path am I supposed to do that with the work that I do now it does take up a lot of emotional strength and I have a lot of emotional strength but I also already had two burnouts where I didn't pay enough attention to my needs and where I stand and how I need to protect myself in order to be great at what I do and in order to be a great mom as well and to look after myself just as a woman do you know what Maybe. I mean there needs that you have in life. And for me, one of the biggest realizations was about three years into it. It took me that long. Can you believe it, Scott? About three years into it, I had this epiphany that I thought, I'm not a single parent. I am a soul parent. When when you talk about a single parent, there's always another single parent floating around, sharing holidays, sharing decisions, sharing financial burdens burdens. And I didn't have that. I was a soul parent. There was nobody else around. And that, to me, shifted so much because I actually owned it even more. I already owned being a single parent because I didn't fall into this poor me, oh, now it's only me and nobody else. I had moments where I thought, oh, my God, I wish Rob was there so I could discuss with him, no questions asked. But it was almost like when Rob died, I just accepted that this is it, I'm it, and I'm making the decisions, and I need to step up, and I need to be there for them, and I wanted to. That's a big thing, you know and then i realized i'm a soul parent and it was almost like this next level stepping into it and owning it and that was really quite incredible so i think very much being in the moment and trusting surrender in the most positive way that was my path really
0: do you think mm-hmm. the writing the book was that part of your grief recovery or mm-hmm. is that when you first started I, to write it was that kind of where it was coming from or
1: i think it was more there were a couple of little reasons that all came to this big, I really need to write this. First of all, I really wanted to leave it as a love legacy for Rob. I wanted to write something that showed people that didn't know him who we were as a couple, who Rob was. And and then I also thought it would be nice for the boys one day to read it because they were only 10 and 8 when Rob died. So they were quite little. I would have not let them read the book back then And they still haven't read it. They're 12 and 14 now. They know exactly what I do. They're very involved in, you know, what I do. I tell them every day when I have an interview, a media piece comes out. I was interviewed by our two biggest TV channels here and and they were so excited for me. They're always my biggest supporters and rooting for me. But it was also, I thought, if I could just give a couple of people hope that there is a different way of grieving, a different way of dealing with that. I want them to feel validated because people feel so lonely with wanting to be happy because they feel it's not allowed or mm-hmm. society doesn't expect them to do that. And then they're all baffled. And there's so much judgment around how people are grieving. And my big shout out here, if you take anything away from this podcast is to please don't judge, just open your heart, just be there. whole space for the people. That's what they need.
0: Mm-hmm. So how did, that lead to starting movement piece of this?
1: As I said, the book ranked in the top 100 and I, I did not expect that. It was so surprising for me. And only a couple of weeks after the book was published, maybe two or three weeks after, the boys and I boarded a plane on a trip around the world. I decided to take the boys away from all of these first milestones without their dad. I thought. I'm going to do exactly what I promised, Rob. I'm going to create new and happy memories. So we're going on a trip around the world. (laughs) Pack your bags. We're going. And I literally, it took me, I know, I say it it as a spontaneous decision. It took me weeks and weeks to make the decision to decide where we're going to go. And then I finally had the itinerary. And I remember walking in and out of the travel agency like two or three times. And (laughs) again, I got a very strong sign, which was really beautiful. I, I got so many signs on on my way when I was questioning it. And one of those things was Rob and I had one of our favourite singers is Jason morass and there's a song that's called I Want You To Have It All. Mm-hmm. I never heard that song before. I didn't know about this song, although we were such big fans of Jason morass and we listened to him quite a lot. But this was a song I never heard, and I remember when I had to make the decision and that song came on the radio, and I'm like, the words couldn't be more perfect. I want you to have it all. Do you go? Do you not go? I want you to have it all. And I actually zammed that song because I wanted to know what it, you know, who it is, who it's by. And I was like, oh my god, that's Jason Mraz. I can't believe it. That was that felt such such a strong sign. So I thought, you know what, back and forth, I finally paid for the trip. And I came back in the car and that was like a week later or a couple of days later, I came back in the car, the same song came on again again. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is incredible. You know, believe in science or not, but I do. And it was really beautiful um, to feel that I'm supported in that decision. So I took him on a trip around the world. And when I was in Vienna, where I'm originally from, I was actually sitting in my old apartment because my mom moved into that apartment when I moved to Australia 18 years ago. And I had this moment of just letting everything come through and thinking about how far we have come in those six months since Rob died and what's been happening. It was a bit of a bittersweet moment, but a really beautiful moment of just doing a bit of a recap. And I thought of that book and I just shook my head and I thought, this is incredible. I just can't believe what happened with that. And there it was, there in that moment, I thought, you know what, I've got something that the world needs and that is hope. I need to do something about this. And the same day, again, believe in science or not, I do, I got an email from a mentor that I had been following for a few years at that time already. And a very quick side story, the mentor that I had been working with in my business passed the same way that Rob did only a couple of months after Rob. It was incredible. I just couldn't believe it. Like it really hit me when I heard about me, his passing. And then I thought, who am I going to turn to? Who's going to help me with that? Because I trusted me here with all my heart. He was an incredible mentor, very heart-centered mentor. And you don't find that a lot in business coaching, I have to say. And then that's with no offense to anyone, but there's very often a focus on business. I knew of him. I had followed his newsletter and his focus is on building tribes. So I sent him an email and said, can we meet up? And Three weeks after my return from the trip around the world, I sat in the first workshop and recorded my welcome video to the group and then I opened the door. So it was literally such a whirlwind. I came home, I opened the movement three weeks later and the rest is this history. It was incredible. Like we had like hundreds of people come in the first few weeks and then meanwhile there's a couple of thousand people in there. It's just incredible.
0: I hear you You felt that you were called to do this and you felt that there was a reason to do it and something that you wanted to share with the world. What, at the same time, you mentioned earlier that there's been several times that you, you've overdone it, you've burned out a little bit, you, you've had those sorts of movements. What do you think, how does that balance come about? How have you been working to find that balance between... You know? pouring out for others and yet taking care of yourself, taking care of your boys, taking care of that. And, and I know the answer is not well all the time because it's true for all of us, but how do you think that's evolved for you over the years?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really excellent question because a lot of people who work in a healing space struggle with that balance and so did I. And I think the biggest thing was because I love what I do so much that you don't take enough breaks. You just keep going and keep giving and you get into this, yeah, just constantly being there, being present for everyone. I did not put any boundaries in place. Ooh, keyword, boundaries. That was so important. So I'd say there are two keywords actually that go hand in hand really nicely. That's self-care and boundaries. Mm -hmm. And that was the real key for me to have that balance of still giving but also giving to myself. And I did something and I've been doing it for over a year now that I go to regular massages like every three weeks. I go and get a kahuna massage. It's a Hawaiian healing massage. It's incredible. It's a huge part of my healing journey and my ongoing self-nurturing as well. I do take time out for myself when I feel that I'm coming to that point where I'm like, warning signs. I just take a time out or I have a digital free day or I take my boys and go to the woods or I do a bushwalk or nature is such a big part of this. We really spend more time in nature. We say that so lightheartedly and don't do it often enough. And uh, then I discovered something you'll love this. This is incredible. It's called weekends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what well, one of those what, 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 I only, I've never I heard of that of those.
1: just last June. I literally only discovered that. And I thought, how on earth did I not do that ever? And I kid you not, I know I'm being sarcastic here, but I did not take weekends for the first three years of running the movement. And I'm like, why did I not do that? Because I love what I do. So it's easy for me to just be there and just be present, and just do another live video and just do a couple of posts and just answer a couple of questions Hours later and you're still there. And I thought, no, this has got to stop. Because otherwise, I can't regain my energy and refocus on filling my tank so I can give. It's just really important. And it might sound so easy, but it's not. When you (laughs) love what you do, it's not easy to step away, but it's important.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of, especially entrepreneurs or people that run their own business and have that kind of Uh, uh, drive, coaches, people in healthcare, uh, healing industries, these sorts of things think it's pretty common for folks to burn out. I deal with a lot of nurses and a lot of other folks like yeah. that in some of the work mm-hmm. I do. And oh, yeah. yeah, it's really easy to do it because generally the people that are attracted to those sorts of industries are want to help people. Yeah, exactly. But they forget sometimes that there are people too. <laughs> we gotta help ourselves. <laughs> it's a reminder. Let me write that down. <laughs> it is. It's we <laughs> treat ourselves I tell people all the time we say and do things to ourselves that we would never do yeah. to other people or say to other people or allow other people to do.
1: I love that you say that Scott, because so often when I had moments of Oh my God, I'm not sure you know how to get out of this or how to feel better again or my really closest friends often said to me, I think you should listen to your own videos a little bit more <laughs> and I- I'm really good at teaching it, but I have to remind myself to apply it to myself as well. And that's what I often do. It's my go-to where I'm like, I really need to apply those tools to myself. And those are the tools that I'm now teaching because I have applied them to myself. So I know they're working. Sometimes I do need the reminder like everybody else.
0: So what are some of those tools that you teach for folks that are dealing with grief, trying to, (laughs) maybe they're hearing this and they're in that stage right now. What are some of the things that you teach?
1: I'm going to share two of my favorite starter kits very quickly here, because often when you're listening to this and you're very fresh in a journey, you listen to all the healing stories and you're like, yeah, how am I ever going to get there? It's impossible for me. You honestly think when somebody dies that is so, who's so close to your heart, you don't think that you'll ever get over it in that moment. Or often people think that. So there are two things that I do. One I really like because it's a little game I play that I call the color orange and it's super easy to play. So I'm going to explain it very quickly. I get people to focus on the color orange just for one day and I get them to write a list of all the things orange they can see. Like me just even sitting in my office, I see like an orange dream catcher. I've got like an orange feature wall, an orange clothing, an orange pillow, a little squeezy ball. I've got, you know, my, my there's, I was going to say there's
0: orange like, in the painting behind oh, you. I can see it. Yeah. yeah.
1: So there's so much because orange is my favourite colour and you can replace it with your favourite colour. The colour doesn't matter. It's the focus. Mm -hmm. So I get people to focus on their favourite colour for an entire day, write a list, and you should easily get to about 100 items. And the next day I get them to replace the colour with the emotion they're missing the most. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go with an easy one here. That is very suitable for the space of grief and that is love. For the second day, I asked them, focus on everything love that you can see, feel, hear around you. That can be in a movie that you watch. That can be a butterfly coming past. That can be a mom hugging her baby. That can be a couple walking hand in hand. Whatever that is that means love to you, focus on that. And here's the thing. You do two things with that. You train your brain to focus on the things that you want to see rather than on the pain. and You focus on what you actually need in your life, and when you focus, what we focus on is what we attract into our lives. So it's a very simple game that everyone can play that really prepares you to ease that pain, let me put it that way. You can't just take it away overnight like that. I wish we could. I'd love to, but it's not going to work overnight. So that is a really nice and easy game to play to to get your brain started, I'd say, to prepare yourself to create that focus. And the other question that I often get get people to think about is to separate what they have lost from who they have lost. And people always go, what what do you mean? How can I do that? And i said, tell me the things that you actually miss the most. So in my case, when Rob died, it was things like feeling safe, He was my knight in shining armor. I always felt safe when Rob was around. I never had to worry about anything. And all of a sudden, I had to recreate that feeling of safety for me. It was things like he was such a good provider. He was a hands on dad. He did so much of the cooking. He helped me with the cleaning, with the household, with everything. He was a super hands on husband and dad. So I wrote an entire list of all the things that I really miss of not being, like him not being around. And of course, the physical the hugs, just somebody being there, having you, that's a really big thing for most people in a space of grief. So I get you to write the entire list and then you go through the list because not everything can be replaced. And this is a very very big keyword. It isn't about replacing. It's about recreating. You look at what can I create from that list myself or through other people. There might be things that you outsource like my gardening. i outsource that I got a cleaner to help me in the first few years and then now I'm doing it on my own and it's fine but I got help where I needed it I took all the things where I could and then there are some things like the physical like the hugs it's you can get a lot of your friends to hug you and all of that but it's not the same like when your husband hugs you of course it's not ever going to be the same but it is so important And I'm saying that as an example, because physical hugs are really important for every human being. There's an actual need for it. There are studies done, how many hugs and how many seconds you need per day to to function. It's really incredible how it has an impact on your mental health. So I'm not saying that lightheartedly. I'm saying go out and get hugs, give hugs. It's really, yeah, just see what you can do, what you can create because it puts you back into the state of empowerment and not victimhood, and I can't do this.
0: So what are some of the things that you've seen folks struggle the most with when they're going through this time dealing with the the grief? What are some of the areas that are traps for people, for lack of a better word? Or stumbling blocks.
1: There's one huge one, and that's guilt. That's really reoccurring, and it's very common in grief. And what I say to people is, and this comes back to the field of faith, and I really respect and understand that everyone's faith is very different. But from where I stand and from what my beliefs are is that where Rob is right now, There's nothing but purest, unconditional love and peace. So the concept of guilt doesn't exist on the other side. It's a very human concept. It's something that we are holding on to because we find it easier. And it comes back to that control. It's an emotion that we have control of, believe it or not. We think we don't, but we do. And because we feel so out of control and there's something that happened that we don't have control over, we don't have control over who who lives and who dies. It's not ours to decide. And so we go into something that we have control of. We're holding on to that guilt. If I had only, if I had only said, if I had only done, I wish that were in my last words. I wish I would have picked up the phone. I wish I wouldn't have picked up the phone, whatever. The list is endless. And I look at them and I think, okay, I always do this thing, what I call shifting of perspectives. If you were to step, okay, I'm going to play it myself now. If I was to step into Rob's shoes, where he is now, and all of a sudden I'm in this pure bliss and love and I'm just at peace and my life is just perfect, and then I look down on earth or over or whatever you might call it, and I see Marie and she was struggling with guilt which luckily I wasn't, but that's a completely different story. But there is my wife and she's struggling with guilt. Would you want her to feel that? Would you feel or would you like? But the reason is that triggers the guilt. It doesn't exist on the other side anymore. It doesn't exist. There's just love. There's just purest bliss and forgiveness and peace So there is no need for guilt. It's an absolute human concept. And I understand that people often take a long time to understand that until they can finally let go. But I'm saying it's like a tug of war. You pull for no reason and all you get is like really raw and open wounds in your hands and all you need to do is let go. And I understand more than anyone because me, that concept of letting go took me three decades to understand, three decades from when my dad passed Mm -hmm. and Actually, way before then, but that's a completely different podcast. So anyway, when I understood the concept of letting go, all of a sudden everything became easy. My entire life I thought, how do you just let go? How do you just let go? Just and let go does not work in one sentence. It's a really Mm -hmm. hard concept, but once you understand it, it's so easy and you just can't ever look back. When you understand that there's only love and peace, you can't go back to guilt. It doesn't work. Mm.
0: So my brand is Inspired Stewardship, and I run things through that lens of stewardship. And mm-hmm. yet I've discovered over the years that that's one of those words that it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. So what does the when you hear the word stewardship, what does that word mean to you? And how do you think that meaning intersects with your life?
1: Yeah, that's a really beautiful question. And Scott, I have to be super honest here. I actually had to translate the word stewardship for me because I'm bilingual. I didn't grow up like my mother tongue is German so stewardship was a really a word for me that I had heard of and knew but couldn't really make sense of so I really sat with it and I was glad that you gave me that one question actually up front because I really needed to sit with it and think about it and for me what came up was really one word and that one word that stuck with me is that being in entrusted in someone and that really works on so many levels around what I do because obviously I'm entrusted in this whole spiritual journey that I really trust my guidance my inner guidance the guidance from above that I'm held in this journey that I'm really led on this path and then there's also my beautiful community that I'm really entrusted in me and I don't take that like heartedly they really trust my guidance. And if I don't look after my own and strengthen that and know where I'm heading, I wouldn't be able to lead them. And I really like that concept, that feeling of being entrusted.
0: That's Mm. incredible. I like that. I like that, that, that definition. So if I invented this magic machine, and I was able to pluck you from the chair where you are today, and transport you into the future, maybe 150 or 200 years. Mm -hmm. And through the power of this machine, you were able to look back and see your entire life and see all of the relationships, all of the connections, all of the ripples that you've left behind in the world. What do you hope you've left behind in the world?
1: My biggest mission is to heal the world from grief. And I would like to see that. I would like to see, looking back, a different approach and that the legacy that I have left behind was that people look at grief differently and that instead of being uh, putting expectation or judgment on grief, they just open their heart and hold space for people because that's all it takes. And it doesn't really take much to do that, to stop the judgment and just open your heart and hold space for people and allow them to have joy and happiness in their lives again. And that's what I would like to see. Very
0: simple. So what's coming next for you as you continue on this journey?
1: What's coming next for me? So we do have a lot of media attention at the moment again, which is really quite incredible. It always spreads the word so nicely, and I really love that. And I also have our next retreat coming up in September that I'm really looking forward to. It's. Um, I decided to only do it once a year now because it's just... With all the parameters that we're dealing with with COVID, et cetera, there's just too many ifs and buts that we need to cover to make that happen. But I really love the retreat. I only take a very small amount of numbers for a three and a half day, very intense healing journey. It's really, really beautiful. And I also started a membership out of that entire movement that we have where we catch up for fortnightly coaching calls and I really love that it's called the happy healing membership it's the title of my second book actually that I gave that membership I thought it's very suitable and I also started doing VIP days with people I've already had the first couple VIP days and I just really love the transformation that is possible in one day it's absolutely mind-blowing and just so beautiful when you see how people walk in and how they walk out. And they have so much hope and direction when they walk out of here. And I just really love giving that to people. It fills my heart with so much joy and it has a lot of meaning.
0: You can find out more about Marie and her movement on her website at mariealessi.com. And of course, I'll have links to that in the show notes. That's spelt dot com. I'll have links to that. Marie, is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener?
1: I just want to say thank you, Scott, for holding this space because your podcast is really beautiful and it's just amazing when you get a platform like that where you can share your message. So I just wanted to thank you for holding space for me today to let me share my story.
0: Absolutely. I'm glad to do it. Glad to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Inspired Stewardship Podcast. As a subscriber and listener, we challenge you to not just sit back and passively listen, but act on what you've heard and find a way to live your calling. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please do us a favor. Go over to inspiredstewardship.com slash